From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. This past June, many breathed a sigh of relief when the U.S. Supreme Court rose above partisanship in controversial cases involving abortion, LGBTQ plus rights, the rights of dreamers, and the president's tax returns. In those cases, conservative justices relied on legal reasoning rather than party loyalty to guide their decisions. But lurking in the shadows is a concerning new trend in the Supreme Court to grant an unprecedented number of emergency orders with little transparency and no opportunity for recourse. These cases fall under the court's aptly named shadow docket. And under the Trump administration, this shadow docket has grown exponentially, with the Supreme Court disproportionately ruling on the side of the administration. Here to tell us about this trend and why it's so concerning is the ACLU's legal director, David Cole. We spoke with David before Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and before President Trump had announced Amy Coney Barrett as his pick to replace Justice Ginsburg. It is safe to say that the trends we discussed with David are unlikely to shift course and could even worsen in the wake of these events. Now to our interview. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Molly. First off, I wanted to mention that you've been on the podcast before, not so long ago. We talked about the end of the Supreme Court term and all of the decisions that had just dramatically come down in June. And we were basically heaping praise on the court for sort of rising above those party loyalties and using legal reasoning and crossing political divides. And I'm wondering if right now we need to add a really big footnote to all of that um, with this sort of shadow docket and what's happened in particularly in the last few months. Uh, Sadly, yes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when the court has to give full consideration to an issue, hear from both sides, hear argument, and write an opinion giving its legal reasons for its results, it will sometimes rise above partisan divide, rise above the gut reactions of the justices. And we saw that time and again this past term in the court. But in the shadow docket, these are emergency requests that the government generally makes, sometimes the other side, but usually it's the government, where they have lost a decision below and they are asking the Supreme Court on an emergency basis to either issue a stay of the injunction that was won below or sometimes full relief. And the court decides these in a matter of days, sometimes in a matter of hours, it does not generally give reasons for its decisions. And lo and behold, we are finding increasingly that those cases are coming out 5-4 with the Republican appointed justices all on one side and the Democratic appointed justices all on the other. So I guess my question is if you could paint a picture before we go really deep into the, the shadow docket of what's normally the procedure. Like, I think most of us have this sense of, you know, the court gets all these petitions, they hear a very small number of them, and then these big arguments happen, and there is a ton of public scrutiny, media coverage. Can you lay out the difference between what we normally think of when we think of the Supreme Court hearing and deciding on cases and how it differs in this instance? Yeah, so ordinarily, the Supreme Court doesn't get involved in reviewing a case until the case has been through all of the lower court procedures, which includes a district court trial, an appeal to a federal court of appeals, uh, fully briefed, a decision written by that court, 
And then the losing party asks the Supreme Court to review the case. If the Supreme Court agrees to review the case, it sets a schedule for briefing in the Supreme Court of the case. Many, many amicus briefs are often filed in cases that affect a lot of people. The Supreme Court then hears oral argument. It comes together, it decides the case, and it writes a decision, sometimes with dissents. And that all takes, you know, a year, roughly, um, sometimes a little bit quicker, sometimes a little longer. But, you know, generally within a year, all the cases in the current term get decided. But with reasoning, with argument, with full briefing, and after the lower courts have fully, you know, dealt with uh, the matter. So that's the ordinary procedure. So the shadow docket is really meant for quote-unquote emergencies. It's supposed to be only used in extraordinary circumstances. And the idea is if a party has prevailed in the lower court, got an injunction. So, for example, we obtained an injunction against President Trump's border wall. And the government has a right to appeal that decision to the Court of Appeals. And if it loses in the Court of Appeals, it has a right to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, in these cases, it goes to the Supreme Court as soon as it loses. Um, it goes to the Supreme Court and it says, it's going to take too long for us to have our case heard. And by the time it gets heard, we will be irreparably harmed because we won't have been able to build the border wall uh, in the meantime. And so we want you to grant an emergency order that nullifies the victory of the other party in the lower courts for as long as it takes for the case to get up to the Supreme Court again. And in many cases, those things are filed. The government files an emergency motion. The court then gives the other side anywhere from two days to 10 days to respond. You never know, you know, sort of it's, it's up to them, but it's always very, very brief. Then the court decides the case, usually within a day or three of the opposition brief being filed with the court. There's no argument. And they generally decide the case without indicating the reasons for their decision. Even though the lower courts have given reasons for their decisions, uh, they always give reasons for their decisions, including when the government seeks emergency relief, which it often does. It has to seek this emergency relief in the lower courts before it can go to the Supreme Court. There, the lower courts give reasons for their decision. But the Supreme Court doesn't, generally, doesn't give reasons. So you're left with a court that can essentially decide cases without explaining the justification for its actions, which leaves the parties, you know, not knowing what the justification was, which leaves the lower courts not knowing what they did wrong, which leaves the law unclear, and I think takes away the disciplining effect of having to give legal reasons. And lo and behold, what we're seeing are five to four decisions with the conservative justices grouping and the liberal justices grouping and, you know, no reasons. Sometimes the dissenting justices will give reasons. They'll write a dissent. But even then, 
the majority does not generally give any reasons for its actions. So what I'm hearing you say is that basically three really important things that happen in other circumstances are not happening here. What I'm hearing is there's no adequate public scrutiny. The lower courts have no mandate on legal precedent. So they're sort of left with just everything they said is undone with no reasoning. And the parties who have been ruled against have no recourse. And it seems like in some circumstances, and actually I I would love for you to give some examples, that the parties involved, that this includes death penalty cases. This is a matter of life and death in many circumstances. And that seems like a huge abuse of power. Is that accurate? So, you know, it depends. I mean, um, there needs to be some mechanism by which the court can decide cases that truly need to be decided on an emergency basis. And, you know, if it takes a year to decide a case and something irreparable would happen in the interim, it's it's, so you do need some process for emergency decision making. But we have a process for emergency decision making in the lower courts, which includes the writing of a decision, the explanation for why the court is doing what it's doing. The Supreme Court is the only court that sort of, you know, gives itself a pass, basically, on giving reasons. That's number one. Number two, it really ought to be employed only in true emergencies. Which it used to be, right? Like over the both four terms, Bush and Obama, if I'm remembering correctly, four times that it was used? I don't have the precise numbers at hand, but the Trump administration has radically increased its resort to this measure. And there's Professor Steve Vladek at University of Texas sort of follows this and has a whole article on it in the Harvard Law Review and and has shown that this Solicitor General has used this more than any other Solicitor General by far. But and, And in situations that just are not emergencies. So, for example, one of the most outrageous cases is a case that we litigated involving an Orange County jail that was failing to protect its inmates from the risks of COVID. And they were not following the CDC recommended guidelines. So we sued. And the district court found that they were not following the CDC guidelines. It found that that violated the Constitution. It also importantly found that that violated the Americans with Disability Act. And I'll say why that's important in a moment. And so it issued an injunction. And it was a preliminary injunction. It wasn't a final injunction, just a preliminary injunction, but basically saying, to the jail, get your act together, protect these people, follow, at least follow what the CDC says jails should be doing. And the sheriff went to the Court of Appeals twice to ask for emergency relief from this order. Both times, the Court of Appeals unanimously rejected his appeal. And just to confirm, emergency relief would have meant that the sheriff did not have to get its act together. Right. It's called a stay, but it would basically say the injunction that was put in place will be put on hold um, for the duration of the appeal. And the Court of Appeals twice said no to that. And I think part one reason they may have said no to that was that the sheriff didn't even appeal the part of the district court's decision that said that the Americans with Disabilities Act required this measure. So even if you you know, thought there was a problem with the constitutional ruling, which is what the sheriff argued, it doesn't matter because the injunction was independently justified by the violation of the ADA. He didn't even appeal that. And yet he wanted a stay 
pending his appeal. And so the Ninth Circuit twice rejected it unanimously. So then he goes to the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, again, he does not appeal the Americans with Disability Act ruling, which independently justified the injunction. He doesn't even cite the right standard for when the Supreme Court is authorized to give these kind of stay relief. And at the end of the day, this was no different from dozens of preliminary injunctions issued in jail and prison condition cases across this country that the Supreme Court almost never uh, gets involved in. And just to be clear, it's very confusing why he needed emergency relief. What well, exactly. is the emergency exactly. about having to follow CDC guidelines? That's, that's really confusing as an outsider. Exactly. And a great question. One of the things you have to show to get this emergency relief is what we call irreparable harm, which means I will be uh, harmed while I'm litigating my appeal in ways that can't be remedied after the fact. But your question is exactly right. How are you harmed by having to put in place safety measures for the people in your jail? He he didn't even make a, a showing of irreparable harm. So no showing of irreparable harm. He didn't appeal one of the legal bases for the injunction. This was an ordinary preliminary injunction, the kind the court never reviews in other cases. Uh, And the court, five to four, granted the stay, uh, did not issue any decision explaining its reasoning, despite the fact that Justice Sotomayor wrote an eight-page dissent detailing all the reasons why this was out of the ordinary, unjustified. So it's really, you know, lawless decision making. It's, you know, the rule of law requires that the people who are making the decisions tell us why they're making the decisions and agree to be bound by those reasons in future cases. If they don't have to tell us, if they don't have to be bound by what they decide because they don't even give reasons, they can do whatever the hell they want. And that's a case where there was no emergency and they gave no reasons. And what's interesting, too, is that under the Trump administration, not only has the number of these cases increased, but isn't it also true that they have a fairly high win rate, that the Trump administration has prevailed in a number of these cases, which almost seems like if I were part of the Justice Department, I would then use this as a strategy. I mean, it seems like a get out of jail free card to me. Well, they certainly have a better win rate in these matters than they do in the fully argued cases where You know, they lost on the Trump tax records. They lost on the LGBT equality case. They lost on uh, on DACA. They lost on the abortion case. Right. So, yeah, but here they seem to win and they win in short order. And what a defender of the practice might say is, well, they haven't won. Finally, it's just a temporary stay and the case will proceed. But in many instances, you know, it, it basically resolves the case. So, I mean, well, also for example, with death penalty, it it's over. It I does. Mean, it does. And there, right. there is there was a recent death penalty case, Wes Perky, right? Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Wes Perky was one of the men who was on death row under federal law, and recently the Bar Justice Department decided to go forward with executions of a number of the people on death row, despite the fact that uh, there had not been an execution in many, many years. And one of them was Wes Perky. And and Wes Perky's lawyers went to court and said, Wes Perky, you know, has dementia. He has dementia. And there is a constitutional decision that says 
it is cruel and unusual to execute someone who doesn't understand why he is being executed. And therefore, where there's a serious question about that, you have to have a hearing to determine whether this person is compass mentis for purposes of understanding that he is going to be executed for a crime. And he argued, his lawyers argued, that he has serious dementia. He does not know what is going on in his life. He does not know why he is being executed. And we need a hearing on that. District Court agreed. Court of Appeals unanimously agreed. Supreme Court grants a stay on one of these emergency motions overnight, within a matter of hours, without giving any reasons. And again, what's the emergency here? I mean, if it takes a week or a month or even three months to have the hearing and you determine at the end of the hearing that Wes Perky is actually competent to be executed, he can be executed. There is no irreparable harm. And yet the court, in a matter of hours, reversed the unanimous decisions of the lower courts and did not even give reasons for doing so. I want to dig in a little bit more to the fact that there are no decisions. This seems like it has a it's problematic not just because the lower courts don't have legal precedent to follow, but also doesn't something happen, at least I read in one place, that when a decision won't write, it may not be the right decision. Yeah. And that there is something, there's a stopgap measure in justices making um, rulings that if the decision won't write, there's a problem. But then if you don't have to write these decisions, there's no stopgap measure. There's really nothing regulating these decisions. Yeah, no, it's very disturbing. I mean, one of the most basic principles of the rule of law is that people have to explain themselves. And so, for example, under the Administrative Procedures Act, which is the tool by which courts review decisions by administrative agencies, you know, the EPA or, uh, you know, the Census uh, Department of Commerce, whatever, you know, what the APA says is that courts can reverse agency decisions if they are arbitrary and capricious. Oh, DACA. Yeah, DACA is an example of that, exactly. One basis for finding that a decision is arbitrary and capricious is that the agency gave no reasons for its decision or even gave inadequate reasons for its decision. And so what the Supreme Court treats as arbitrary and capricious when it is done by an agency, it treats as, you know, everyday business when it does it itself. Wait, David, help me understand this. Why... Why is this allowed to happen? I mean, maybe it did, wasn't an issue when it wasn't coming up as much, but doesn't it feel like something should happen? That This just feels like a, a terrible miscarriage of justice. Well, I think what should happen is that, first of all, they should only use it in true emergencies, not in situations like the COVID detention case we talked about or West Perky's case, but in real emergencies, number one. Number two, they should have the obligation to give reasons. All of these stay requests, in order to make a stay request in the Supreme Court, you first have to make it to the district court and you have to make it to the Court of Appeals. They decide them very quickly, but they give reasons. The Supreme Court gives no reasons. Why shouldn't the Supreme Court have to give reasons? Now, one thing the court will say is, well, or might say, because it doesn't give reasons, so we don't know, might say is, well, we're deciding these things very quickly and you know, we kind of have to decide them quickly and we don't have the full benefit of, you know, briefing and argument, etc. And so we shouldn't give our reasons because if we give our reasons, we might be bound in later cases to follow 
decisions that were not carefully thought through, right? The fact that you have to decide it quickly might, means you might be more likely to make a mistake. We shouldn't bind ourselves to those mistakes. But that's easy to solve, that problem. That's true in the Court of Appeals as well. And they basically say those decisions are binding with respect to emergency cases, but they're not binding with respect to fully briefed cases. So, you know, a court is able to say, well, having now had the benefit of full briefing and argument, we will decide X, even if, you know, at an earlier point on a very preliminary and emergency basis, they had, they had said not X. So the Supreme Court could have the same doctrine, and that would be fine. What is not fine uh, is a Supreme Court that has started to use this on a regular basis in non-emergency situations and without giving reasons. But who's going to enforce that accountability? Because obviously it's not going to be the Trump administration. This is working great for them. And it's not going to be the Supreme Court itself. Is it Congress? Is it people's outrage? What? How do we get there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it's people's. I think it is. You know, the first thing you need to do, we need to do, is shed light on this problem. Right. Take it out of the shadows. Yeah, take it out of the shadows, which is why I wrote the piece in the Washington Post a, a couple of weeks ago, and others have also written about this and sort of brought it to public attention. And then, if there's sufficient public attention and public criticism, then at some point the court will feel bound to do more. To, to, to justify what, what it's doing and maybe constrained in what it's doing. We haven't seen that yet. I fear we're going to see a lot of these in the next few months because the election is coming up. I don't know if you knew, yeah. but yeah. I was just going there. I, it had been passing, a passing thought. Is, yeah, so can you go into more detail on that? Like, how is the shadow docket potentially going to be used in all, there's a ton of voting yeah. rights litigation out there um, from us, from other organizations, from the RNC, from all, all different places. How, are you concerned about how this is going to play out in those cases? Absolutely. And, you know, it's not just speculation. The, the court has now seven times uh, in the last year, reversed lower court decisions or granted stays that effectively reverse lower court decisions that are designed to increase access to the ballot. Um, and it's done it without, in, in almost all cases, without giving any reasons whatsoever. I mean, the most, the one that people may recall most vividly was Wisconsin, right at the beginning right. of the pandemic. In April. Yeah, uh, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, the primary People do not want to go out to the polling place and risk infection and possibly death in order to exercise the franchise. And so some folks go to court. The court says, you know, this is an emergency situation. There's been an unprecedented request for mail-in ballots. Uh, It has overwhelmed the state officials. And so many people have not gotten their mail-in ballots and the election is coming up. And so I order that they count ballots not just ballots that are postmarked on election day, but ballots that are, or no, but not just ballots that are received on election day, but right. those that are postmarked on election day, right. even if they're received the next day or the day after that. You know, that was a very modest rule. And it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court overnight, the night before the election, uh, reversed it, stayed it with one of these stay rulings. And so people had to risk their lives to go out and vote. The public health officials later found a substantial number of people who they believe contracted COVID because they went to the polls to vote. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court 
in voting on that stay application did not come into the office. They voted remotely, but they voted remotely to bar people from effectively voting remotely at home. And so, you know, so so I think the concern is that there are many similar lawsuits right now seeking to basically preserve democracy in the pandemic and to allow people to vote at home safely. And the court, uh, we're, we're winning a lot of those cases. We have 20 of those cases uh, going right now. We're winning a lot of them. And there's a real risk that if the state appeals all the way up, the victory can be erased by the Supreme Court on one of these emergency uh, decisions. So what I'm taking away from all this is that the way that we are going to make change is through public scrutiny and also media coverage, but that that public scrutiny and media coverage has to come right now, that there is no time to waste because it sounds like, is this putting it too boldly? Our democracy is at risk? Is that is that too big a statement? Well, I think democracy and the rule of law. So, uh, yeah, both. So you're adding to it rather than. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'll raise you one. Uh, Absolutely. And I I do think, you know, I mean, it'd be great if we could, you know, solve this problem between now and November. I I don't know that we will, um, but we have to keep on them until they do um, solve the problem. And I think the more public scrutiny there is, the more they will feel some reticence about abusing this power. So it's really important that people are aware of it. It's important that people write about it. Uh, I think it'd be great to have a congressional hearing on it just to bring public exposure. Well, also, justices within the Supreme Court are already upset about it. I mean, Justice Sotomayor, am I wrong, went on on a limb and boldly said that this is not how the court should be using their emergency powers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, you know, most of the world, most of the country is oblivious, right? And so as long as that's the case, the court can kind of get away with it. So I, you know, I think I think the, the, our job is really to, as I said, to bring the shadow docket to light. It's also this perfect storm, it seems, um, of the Solicitor General, who's right a part of DOJ, sort of working almost with the Supreme Court to sort of make this all come into a perfect storm. In a world where we have a different president and a different DOJ, is there anything else that can be done to sort of forward-facing besides the public scrutiny moment and, and I guess basically shaming the Supreme Court into being more selective about using their emergency powers? Is there anything that a future DOJ can do um, so that, I mean, what I feel like happens is that we get complacent, right? That when this isn't an issue, but it will always be an issue, you know, with a different president or, you know, who knows? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I, the DOJ can't change the rules itself. The DOJ, the, a different solicitor general could exercise his or her discretion about pursuing this avenue of relief and only pursuing it in true emergencies. That would be one thing. So you could, you know, that wouldn't solve the problem for the next one, but it would mitigate the problem at the moment. Um, but I think it really is about shaming the court, I think. And that's about public scrutiny. And if that public scrutiny comes from the DOJ, if it comes from the House or the Senate uh, Judiciary Committees who hold hearings on it, if it comes from academics and, and other leading practitioners who raise concerns about it, the ABA, the American Bar Association could raise concerns about it. We at the ACLU have raised concerns about it, but we need to be joined by other voices if change is going to come. Well, David, thank you so much for this. It's terrifying, but good to know. And we hope to get the word out even more. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, this is part of it, right, is this podcast will make people aware that there's a problem. And that's the beginning of the solution. So thank you. 
Yeah, that's the hope. Thanks so much, David. Thanks so much for listening. We've got some exciting news here at At Liberty. We've launched a special 2020 series called At the Polls. This will be in addition to our normal At Liberty episodes. Each week, we're answering a new question about voting rights in the lead up to the presidential election. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave a message at 212-549-2558 or email podcast at aclu.org. We so look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, stay strong.